When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Vince going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! Gee! He's round the goalkeeper! He's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was And time, and time again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! Drilling down into the semi-noticed demise of the FA Cup final song, the angular awkward appeal of multi-club Irish dreamer Robbie Keane, the selective habits of football TV cameramen, the mandatory elements of 98% of footballing autobiographies, why pre-match poems are, regrettably, the absolute pits, and the search for a glimmer of innocence in the depraved forums that are the chat boxes of illegal live streams. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 147 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry, alongside me for this one is Nick Miller. How are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, who did you annoy on Twitter this week? I was, I was trying to work it out um, with your with your piece about Stephen Gerrard's lecture to Bukayo Saka. Uh, what exactly did you rile people with for this one? My hard-hitting opinions, obviously. It seemed to be mainly an argument that didn't really need me to be there between Arsenal and Aston Villa fans over whether Tyrone Mings actually fouled Bukayo Saka, which was thoroughly tedious, but um, I should have seen coming, really. This is the peril of uh, expressing something close to sincere opinions about football, which is something I'd try and avoid, broadly speaking, but it's just a reminder that my, my previous policy is entirely correct. Not the only mini-controversy, of course, you got involved in this week, um, because uh, our guest for Mesut Harland Dicks this week is not Ken Early, it's not Eamon Dunphy. <laughs> It's writer, observer columnist, and one of the first mainstream advocates for Steve Bruce's crime thriller trilogy, it's Seamus O'Reilly. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real thrill. It's a pleasure. It's been a long time coming. The selection headache we had with you for this week, these are the things we had to leave out of Meza Harland Dix. Of course, the novels of Steve Bruce. I mean, it's important to declare that you were the first... First, to kind of really focus on this, and it, before it became a mainstream preoccupation for many people. Yeah, I mean, I like to think I was the I was the progenitor for something which kind of then became batted around most football-related podcasts, etc. And I do have some slight... I don't really actually care. I'm just glad that loads of people talked about them because I enjoy talking about them too, and it means I get to more. But I do have proof in the fact that I paid £12 for the first one <laughs> and stupidly didn't buy two and three before I wrote the piece that I just put up on my own crap blog that nobody read until that piece uh, and then by the time I went to get the second one it was like I think 150 quid and then the third one was uh, I think a grand by the time so I think I, I got one from a 
I got one from a copyright library in Dublin when I was back there. Uh, so that was what I had to do. But they're incredible. Um, I'm sure most people who listen to your show are probably fairly familiar. But if you're not, I mean, I really cannot recommend enough. Obviously that you read uh, my very, very long reviews, which are longer than any of my university dissertations, <laughs> each, each of them. Um, but also just there, there are other podcasts where people actually read snippets and stuff. You won't believe how much joy uh, you can take from them because... They're not what you expect. You expect there to be slightly leaden football thrillers. They're not. They're they're sort of espionage murder thrillers with about five pages of football in them written in one six-month period, all three of them, uh, when Steve Bruce was manager of Huddersfield. And yeah, they're an amazing time capsule of literature, obviously, but also the sort of breezily indeterminate skills and or fascinations of everybody's favourite Geordie so yeah I, 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 I'm I an advocate in fact I'm an evangelist uh, <laughs> so yeah and, and well, I basically want to set up a big library or maybe perhaps a literary society where we publish a quarterly magazine just going through you know the concept of gender within the Steve Bruce uh, canon <laughs> or you know putting it all out in the field you know questions of landscape in the Steve Bruce literary canon etc so um, that's you know if there's people listening a sort of sugar daddy type billionaire then please uh, find my details and, and set it up but the, the work you put into that uh, definitely earned you the right to describe the trilogy as the Bruniverse which I thought was absolutely <laughs> wonderful so that's the name for your quarterly piece um, but this isn't quickly Kevin this is football cliches we're not doing Steve Bruce we're doing Mesut Harland Dicks with Seamus O'Reilly Seamus please tell us about your first declared love of football please well I think the first one that I gave to you was FA Cup songs. Very specifically, I mean by this, songs that are being recorded by the team. Obviously, you must have that they've got, you know, the big headphones on in the video, that some of them are a bit too into it. And even better, some of them are not into it at all. And they're like singing at the back of the class. And there are two reasons why I love them. One is obviously that they're amazing, but I'll get to that in a second. But the other reason is because I'm fascinated with cultural ephemera that simply disappear and everybody stops doing it but there's no decision made in the culture everyone just wakes up and realizes it's been about five years since we did that thing so another one that always gets me is trailers that have narration you know in a world where blah 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 that doesn't exist that hasn't existed for about 10 years and until you until you mention it to someone they oh yeah i haven't seen one of those now it's all sort of a big hand zimmer score or a, a creepily sort of uh, performed cover of a well-known song for like a horror movie but that whole you know in a world where love is against the law <laughs> that stuff doesn't exist anymore and nobody said oh this is rubbish we need to get rid of it we just slowly faded out it's like like the dvd uh, thing where everyone looked up and realized that they hadn't bought a dvd in about five ten years but you can still buy them in shops but you know less and less so that fascinates me and the fact that throughout my childhood as a 90s sport football fan particularly they were like huge they had huge currency i mean i don't think i realized at the time that there was a sort of second golden age i think those 70s and 80s ones which i'm sure we'll get into are incredibly charming but i believe i'm right in saying that they was at the 96 FA Cup final where Man United and Liverpool had competing ones and I just read today that that was actually the first ever number one from an FA Cup final song which doesn't seem to make sense because it would indicate that Come On You Reds which is the song in question must have been bought by people who didn't support Man United which seems extremely unlikely I mean I grew up and still I'm a Liverpool fan anyway 
But like, would a neutral buy a football song? It just seems, I mean, it seems odd. Um, so commercially, they never seem to make any sense. Well, the status but, quo were involved, so presumably the status quo fans. Maybe, yeah, but like, I don't know, a status quo fan who supports Completists. like... Completists. But like, yeah, but if they like support like Portsmouth, would they be buying a Man United song? You know, there's, there's got to be more people, particularly in that sort of 1996 pomp where Man United were not particularly the most well-liked team mm. among neutrals. That that astonishes me. And it obviously is quite a shameful part of my own backstory because Liverpool's effort was the decidedly shite pass and move. Mm. It's the Liverpool groove, yeah. which about which we don't really have to say very much more. Maybe glory hunting sort of translates to the charts. If, if a song looks like it's going to get to number one, Nick, people will start to buy the single. And then if it's, you throw Manchester United into the mix, maybe the maybe the, the two worlds collide quite well. That was sort of around the, the time of the tail end era where anything music and Manchester related was immediately cool. So I don't know whether that kind of played into it as well. I suppose o- o- Oasis would have been kind of at their sort of irritating peak at that point mm. but um, and well obviously not United fans I, I, I just wonder whether that had something to do with it as well I don't know right let's let's drill down into this into this subgenre Seamus first of all my question to you is is there a more unapologetically unsophisticated genre of popular music than the FA Cup final song I mean there are so many important elements of the of the average FA Cup final song over the last four or five decades there's a tempo to them there's a sentiment to them the lyrics are all the same it's very middle of the road it couldn't be more middle of the road well yeah and also it's being as we said before executed by people who absolutely do not want to be doing it (laughs) And, and, and worse within a cohort where worse again there might be one or two who are a bit too into it Mm. you know and you see i think i remember seeing the ones in the old days where you'd see them maybe on top of the pops yeah like in their kit, not the kits, but the training kits, and just looking like they wanted, they like they were in front of a firing squad. You know, they, <laughs> like, how did they get them there? I mean, presumably, we like to think all the sort of multi-level sort of PR strategy. You know, our our official, you know, instant noodle partner, and all those kinds <laughs> of things that we mark. But there are obviously people like in the business department of these clubs saying, no, no, you have to go. Yeah, you have to go on top of the pops on Friday. Because what more people are going to support like Newcastle or Liverpool or Chelsea because they like the song, but maybe maybe it did. I don't know. Well, we 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 have to look at some examples of this genre, and and I, I don't really want to adopt a let's take a look at the good, bad, and the downright mad approach to this, but we <laughs> we do have to drill into this properly. First of all, as Seamus has already um, cited, Nick, this is "Come On You Reds," which I believe is actually the 1994 FA Cup final. Oh, was it? If okay. I'm not mistaken. Uh, but you did rightly point out that this is the only song by a club to get to number one in the UK. And uh, it's very much the tempo that we were talking about. And, and because it's a status quo collaboration, we all know that every status quo track is essentially an FA Cup final song in disguise. So let's hear it, I, which I think it, it skips along nicely, but it is essentially rubbish. Nick, it dawned on me halfway through that clip that Status Quo must have been delighted to find that Andrei Kachelskis, the multi-syllabic Ukrainian, 
was around because that he he obviously came in quite handy at that point. Very useful for the for the lyric writers there. That song, that presciently that that song became lodged in my head two or three days ago before I knew that Seamus had picked this this topic. Oh wow. I don't, I don't know what I know. Spooky, yeah. Huh? I don't know where that came from, but it, it, it's just it's kind of an indication of what a sort of irritatingly catchy song it was. It was yeah. it was one of those moments where I just I, I immediately went to listen to something completely unlistenable and awful just to just to get it out of out of my head really. And it's you know it's been nearly thirty years, and that's that's still kind of washing around my head it's quite an inoffensive place for us to start Seamus there's no real creases in there they basically just list the players names the sentiment is very, is, is very obvious they've got a big band behind them to, to kind of get it to number one so that's, that's a good start but things things got a bit weirder in 1997 Middlesbrough's FA Cup final song which was a cover of Chris Rea's Let's Dance um, listener Jonathan Fernley um, has alerted me to the fact that halfway through there's a there's a reference to the FA docking them three points for postponing that fixture <laughs> against Blackburn, which eventually sent them down um, to the second tier of English football. Um, let's hear that little bit, which I think is a really odd thing to put in your FA Cup final song. Ward considers that a deduction of three points is right and Premier League years, Seamus. It's topped off by the fact that the um, the response that you can hear is a Phil Stamps going, "You're joking, aren't you?" <laughs> yeah, I was. That was incredible. Just it's, and it's also that sort of that sort of aggrieved victimhood yes. that they worked into like what is supposed to be such a celebratory thing uh, is amazing. Surprised that an FA charge didn't come out of that. Well, is that the one where they were up against Chelsea? And Suggs did Chelsea, Chelsea. We're gonna make it a blue day. I that's David Bowie a, almost. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I've got a very gifted way of making <laughs> Suggs sound like David Bowie. Um, but I weirdly, even more extremely weirdly, considering what Nick was saying, I get that song stuck in my head. Particularly, we're gonna make it a blue. That incredibly asinine refrain. I get it stuck in my head all the time. It's just kind of. It's exactly when I was probably the most football mad if we're talking about 12 13 that whole period when you know i was just absolutely addicted to everything and yeah i i mean i just said who would care about a man united song if they didn't support man united or liverpool but like i remember these songs so vividly because they were such a huge parts of the mega culture and i just wish that they still existed i wish that still we still had that chance i mean they kind of do it at international tournaments but not really i mean like three Lions gets thrown out again. Ireland try something, but it's like it's kind of like Eurovision. They have a representative, but no one really listens to it or anything. So yeah, it's sad. I want to try and test your resolve here, though, about how much you really love FA Cup final songs. Because um, so far we've heard joyous, sort of mid-tempo, gleefully skipping along songs about the sentiment of reaching a final and perhaps winning it. But here's the next one, which is perhaps one of the last entries we, um, that the world will ever have heard. This is Cardiff City's effort in 2008, which I think we can all agree is just far too earnest a piece of music all round to be an FA Cup final song. To the Ayatollah, put your hands upon your head and shout We're going on our way. Can't have 
Uh, Nick, I have to say, I have cheated here a little bit. This wasn't actually their official song, uh, but it does seem rather harsh that it wasn't their official song, seeing as Cardiff striker, lead guitarist and lead vocalist Stephen Thompson was in charge of the whole thing. But it, it, it's, t- it's too much, isn't it? It lays it on too thick. That's extraordinary. It sounds like a sort of... It sounds like a heartfelt song that someone's written about a colleague who's died. They're all just kind of standing around in a circle, solemnly looking on as he sings this dirge. And then the the it's not strings, but it's the the like the string setting on a keyboard comes in and to add, add a little emotional heft. I mean, what's uh, Jesus Christ? I mean, it, there is a precedent, obviously, in Delamitri's "Don't Come Home Too Soon," <laughs> oh, of course. for which is Scotland's, which is like I mean, codified basically forever as we're crap, but please don't let us be too crap. It's like a pre-lament, um, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that was for France 98, wasn't mm. it? Um, I think so. But like, the funny thing, like you said, that was courtesy. That was what year? 2000? 2008. 2008? Mm. Okay, and it wasn't an official song, but it was spellbindingly performed and written by someone in the team. Yeah, which yeah, which, yeah, to me feels harsh that they wouldn't you, have chosen. Is there a hard red line that you've discovered? Because like, I just feel like it faded out to the point where it never happened. But was there a year when it just stopped? I kind of had to look it's hard to say late 2000 seems to me to be the logical point at which the kind of the enthusiasm waned because in fact if you watch if anyone can see the video and look up the video for this particular particular song the card the card of squad nick is actually quite odd there's trevor sinclair robbie fowler this is a second tier team as well jimmy floyd hasselbank they're all politely joining in and then just at the edge of the shot there's roger johnson who i think is the all-time paradigm for absolutely not wanting to be in the video for this <laughs> fucking FA cup song is he is he the one who turns to someone and is clearly slagging it off there's i reckon the, probably yeah there's there's a bit in uh, in the clip where he's literally just just kind of turning and talking to the person beside him. And they're clearly not saying, I'm so moved by this and I'm delighted that he's done this. No there's also they lost, Nick. Well, yeah, there's, there's also, also, I think I spotted a very young Aaron Ramsey uh, yes. in that shot as well. Just obviously uh, standing there going, well, okay, I have to put up with this because one day I'm going to get given 400 grand a week by Juventus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very much the look on his face. Um, so let, let's finally on this point, Seamus, let's try and think of some theories for the demise, if if not a you know cohesive timeline for it. Um, Tom Muldowney, I think he might be Muldowney. Let's try that. Listener Tom Muldowney writes in and says, "I actually think the killer blow was Arsenal's hot stuff in 1998 for the reason that replacing looking for some hot stuff, baby, this evening with the borderline unscannable, we got Matthew and Lewis playing some hot stuff is criminal." Let's hear that bit. In fact. Listing the players in your squad should be a straightforward affair for something like this. But when you're listing uh, things like Matthew Upson, five appearances that season, one in the FA Cup, and that was a fifth round replay, uh, you are stretching it. You're stretching the format to its to its very limits, its mortal limits. Yeah, and also the fact that you've set up the you've set up the kind of internal game of the song by saying, "Oh, we need to name as many 
people as possible. And then in the one line where they list, I think, 14 players in as many syllables, it seems. <laughs> and then they've got Matthew and Lewis playing some hot stuff. Boldly. I mean, they, they, they do get this sort of going into the chorus line, so that's high prominence. But it's incredibly vague, and I don't exactly know what hot stuff exactly means. I also like the fact that they, too, have gone the Middlesbrough route of having that kind of slightly sneering thing about being called boring in a sort of oh, it's fine we're actually laughing about it it's fine it doesn't bother us at all that people used to call us boring under George Graham it's fine like it's, it's, yeah. it doesn't even, we don't even think about that anymore more I point scoring in FA Cup final songs yeah. it's great to see <laughs> I hadn't realised that these scores. I hadn't realised that these songs could go, be quite so passive aggressive this is an <laughs> extraordinary <true>. revelation um, <laughs> Nick our final theory on this on why the FA Cup final song is a thing of the past largely. It's from Thomas Carter. He says, what killed the FA Cup song? Along with the decline in relevance of the pop charts, it's the fact that it's the same handful of clubs appearing in the final every year. Your top six sides would need to be churning out tracks at a similar rate to the fall. It's a good point. I mean, <laughs> you know, at some point they would have to, you know, they would have to bring out albums of this sort of thing. Now the fall, the FA Cup final song, that's one I'd listen to. Mark E. Smith doing, uh, doing a... a a jaunty number about presumably United or City getting to the final. That's that would be good. He did read out the football scores once, didn't it's, he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's not results. a million miles away. Not a million miles away from this this subculture, definitely. Okay, so that's the that's a little potted history of the FA Cup final song. I think we've we've made our peace with why it's dead. But um, shame for you, at least. Uh, sorry about that. Next up, I'm fascinated by this this footballer that you've chosen for your second love of football. Um, I think it's fairly predictable given my age and where I'm from, but mm-hmm. I, I've gone for sometimes regarded as a journeyman icon and sometimes attacked for perhaps his enthusiasm for each team that he has signed for in yes. the past. Robbie Keane, Robert Keane. <laughs> Robert Keane. I have many reasons, uh, but I think first, I think it's a bit, uh, it, I do think he's underrated and I think He's also just someone who just gives me pure joy. A lot of that is situational. Uh, he has given all Ireland fans, possibly who are alive, possibly 80% of the good experiences they've had as an Irish fan, or at least he's been present for them. Um, so that is, you know, he's, I believe he scored 68 goals at international level, which is absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. And I think there's always been that sense that, you know, there's people who like score a lot of goals and they just get referred to as a good goal scorer, but yep. not a great player. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would actually be okay if that was his reputation, but it seems like people don't even realise how many goals he's scored. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the 16th highest scoring player in Premier League history. I believe at the time he retired, uh, he had scored more goals than any other active international. He's probably still scored more goals, I think, in European Championship qualifiers than anyone. Okay. Um, which are, you know... A, a lot of those goals are against you know smaller teams, but like it's like you're every- introducing him to do the Champions League draw or yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> but I just think it's like I'm it's like I'm describing a player that people would have a bit more I think respect for, and I think I think because he does he's like a grin mm. in human form. I think um, <laughs> you know he's 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 doesn't take himself particularly seriously and because he's he's a bit of a knockabout guy who maybe played at an awful lot of clubs people don't realize he's scored more premier league goals than you know Dwight York or Steven Gerrard or all these other players and also that he you know he had longevity he did something very tough in going to the MLS and actually not making a complete hames of it you know <laughs> uh, or i mean and part of that i think was i think because he's adaptable but also because he seems to give a shit and yep. you know i think a lot of players go out, go there and they don't and it's kind of sad he he raised it to his level in a way which i f- always find really 
invigorating. I was like, I was always happy to see him do well there because it seemed like he wasn't embarrassed about it. He wasn't like, oh, this is such a step down or I'm, oh, I don't like the travel. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm going to be MVP, quite charmingly, as they call it over there. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to scream from the rafters and, and always keep telling people that as well as having the soft sentimental attachment to him I have because of that goal against Germany in 2002 where I felt my, my mm. lungs were literally going to leave my body. <laughs> we're definitely going to talk about this. He's objectively a good player and I think he doesn't get his flowers. Well, I, I can assure you, first of all, that the streets will not forget Robbie Keane. <laughs> um, I, I think he's he's safe from being forgotten about by the streets. Um, to pick up on one point, first of all, you, you talked about him being kind of a happy-go-lucky guy who doesn't take himself seriously. I get the opposite impression <laughs> of Robbie Keane. I found him a very kind of, not a dour guy but a very intense kind of serious sort of footballer um so that that's quite interesting that you said that but in trying to kind of sympathize with your love for Robbie Keane apart from the fact he scored some very important goals for your country I put it to you that he's a very relatable footballer because I can't think of many more awkward looking elite level forwards in modern times he he an, odd, an oddly dexterous man but also quite clunky is that fair am i being fair yeah i mean i think the word you could go for is gormless i mean he <laughs> looks yeah he looks like your 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 cousin you know and especially if you're irish he does and he he kind of would try things that were slick if someone else had done them yes. so yes. you know if jj akacha was to do a sort of you know forward roll cartwheel finger guns thing you'd be like ah oh, slick I, I mean I still hope you don't do it every single time JJ but <laughs> wow you looked cool doing it that one time the fact that he did it every single time I mean that added to me that to me is part of his sort of happy lucky charm he's like he's like the guy on the stag do who's the first person to put the traffic cone on his head and as much <laughs> as that can be annoying in, in large doses I mean for 90 minutes a week 180 minutes a week oh my god Pump it into my veins. Yes, he's a very enthusiastic man, no doubt. Nick, explore his awkwardness a little bit more. Um, <laughs> it seemed to work in his favour quite a lot, his kind of weird, angular body. There, there are a couple of goals that, that spring to mind. There, there was a goal for Coventry against Arsenal, which is this kind of outside-of-the-boot flick from a kind of knockdown. There's absolutely no margin for error in terms of its timing, execution and placement. He, he kind of flicked it very nonchalantly, but also very deliberately, with the outside of his boot, into the far corner. I, don't, I can't imagine any other player doing it. it. There's something really kind of angular about him that another players don't seem to be able to achieve. Yeah, I, I, the outside of the boot thing is that that's, I, I associate him with quite delicate outside of the boot finishes, may, maybe little chips over the goalkeeper or something. Yeah. And it, uh, you, you, you referenced the, the kind of his awkwardness. He, would, he, he seemed to be one of those players who would, would look incredibly strange and he looked like his limbs were going to fly off at some point up until the very last minute when he would uh, he would pull out this extremely as you say dexterous very delicate finish that you can't you can't imagine many other players managing to pull off but up up until the point that he does it he looked like you know he was just going to collapse in a in a heap <laughs> of his own limbs and then right at the end yeah there was a it's amazing you say that because i had the exact same thought when i was watching a few clips just enjoying myself uh, <laughs> ahead of this and there is a goal he scored for spurs i think against arsenal newcastle i can't quite remember i watched a lot of them and it's exactly that thing he looks like he looks like a, a folding clothes horse you know he's just <laughs> kind of and it's it looks like it's going to get away from it at any any point um there is a distinct lack of gorm uh, going on and then bam it's just this incredible over the over the 
head of the opposing fullback, then moving in, again looking really awkward. He's lost the ball. No, he hasn't. Oh my God, it's in the back of the net. And that happened all the time. And it was so exciting because whenever the ball came to him, particularly when he was playing for Ireland, you were like, well, toss a coin. Like, there's no, you just don't know. I mean, he's, he's, he just had that kind of, the lovely potentiality of just weird goals. I love that word. I'm I'm going to start using that word forevermore, potentiality. (laughs) Um, There was that goal against Germany at World Cup 2002, which is the angle that his body got into Mm. in order to achieve that finish was both very efficient, but also very funny. And I feel like, again, no other footballer could have put themselves into that very specific position. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was my GCSE year. So I had... I thought you were about to say that was my GCSE project, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, my mathematics was geometrics <laughs> of Robbie Keane's uh, shin. Would read, um, would read. Yeah, no, so I basically decamped after, an, I think, some exam that I had and went straight to the barn for Boston, a pub in Derry. And it's the only time I've ever been watching a match in the pub that had the incredibly febrile, slightly confected craziness that you see in bad movies about football where literally the table upon which my pint was resting was lifted into the air it was complete (laughs) blackness when the goal went in there was just sheer so much noise that it was silent just every you know every filament of my eardrum was completely compacted with noise so it was nothing and then half a second later literally things came down to earth as in glasses chairs people and like a Christopher just, Nolan film, this. We just, yeah, we just saw him wheeling away, literally, unfortunately, wheeling away to this scream and roar of us, of the crowd, and then we just watched the replay again and again. And there's, it's just one of those muscle memory things where if I watch that again, I get like handy 40% of the joy that I felt. I mean, because it was set at such a high benchmark, it's quite a lot of joy, you know? Um, so yeah, but it, like there is that strange, gangly, rangy thing about him that's just lovely it's just unpredictable you, you keep citing him as a as a well quite rightly as a source of national pride but i'm afraid i'm going to have to keep directing it back to his gangliness because nick there is i always felt there was a kind of touch of michael owens about robbie Keane in the way he moved albeit maybe a bit flappier a bit more multi-dimensional in terms of you know the sort of finishes he could produce and i i asked our listeners if they could think of similar footballers who are keeping the runs a bit weirdly flag flying I have to say the responses weren't quite what I was looking for in terms of cohesion, let's put it this way. But some of the metaphors that they came out with were quite sensational. I don't know what any of these mean. None of these have created any sort of image in my mind that I can comprehend, but I'm going to read them out anyway. Cameron Christie says that James Forrest runs a bit like he's left his coat hanger in his shirt. (laughs) Does, Does that mean anything to you, Nick? Yeah, I can see what that means because he has a sort of his his shoulders are quite hunched over, and it does. I can I I can get that. Yeah, I can understand that. Okay, fine. Glad somebody does. Seamus Josh Emerson says John McGinn gets a mention for his running style. I once heard it compared to someone running in or out of a helicopter. Again, (laughs) what does that even mean? Oh, I I know exactly what that means. That's the hunch. That's the hunch and the busy elbows. Yeah, I can see that. Does the helicopter come into it? Well, because you're trying to get away from the blades. Oh, yeah. And and if it would, it would only be better if, for some reason, John McGinn contrived to be like holding the the hat on his head or or the tie. That he was wearing uh, imaginarily, but yeah, I can see that, definitely. I've, I've only ever seen American presidents get out of helicopters, uh, so uh, yeah, it, it just didn't work on me. Uh, Ross FJ, Nick, says, Ian Ormondroid, going back a bit here, always looked like he was the most determined of giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely 
way of putting it. That's Very. an excellent uh, children's book, uh, by the way. The <laughs> most, most determined of giraffes, yeah. Written Ian by Ormandroid. Ian Ormandroid. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, finally, Seamus, Sam says Peter Beardsley ran like he was tiptoeing or creeping up behind somebody in a horror movie, but sped <laughs> up. <laughs> That's great. My brain simply won't allow any of these, but I do. Del- uh, I am reveling in the in the wordplay of all of these. The thing, another thing about Robbie Keane, Seamus, is I feel like he should be the cornerstone of any future effort at doing the cumulative transfer fees eleven. It's a very exclusive club, but he he belongs right at the heart of it. So many big moves, a career that's so much longer and so many more multifaceted than anybody really thinks. Yeah, I mean, he was the most expensive teenager in the world, I think. Was that when he went to Wolves or from Wolves to Coventry? I can't really, I can't remember which one. But I remember it being a big news that oh, this Irish lad has done, uh, done very well. And then he was at Inter for a hot minute. It was not a massive success, but you know that obviously raises your profile because there's not a huge uh, pedigree recently of of Irish players kind of going and doing it on the continent, so to speak. And then yeah, he had the Spurs to Liverpool and then back to Spurs thing, which had the grammar of a loan move but was not a loan move <laughs> <laughs> I've always quite enjoyed because uh, you know reading at the time uh, reading between the lines it seems at least one theory going was that he was literally kind of gotten rid of by the end of his Spurs tenure because he'd been arranging parties he wasn't supposed to be arranging Is um, right I cannot imagine yeah I think Harry Redknapp said he was a very naughty boy he brought some lads over to Dublin for to play and I'm going to have to run out to the shops and buy, buy a bag of uh, inverted commas here. They were playing golf <laughs> and uh, they basically just went to the, to the nightclubs and stuff. And uh, they three days later, they dropped some very significant points and it was re- revealed by the tabloids that this is what had happened. Yeah, he's had an awful lot of big transfers. And then he is obviously also within football nerd circles, uh, in which, of course, I swim, gotten this reputation for perhaps being slightly overly effusive about the chance to play for each of these teams. Mm. So the cliche that goes is that he's, uh, you know, he's he's a boyhood club. He has, you know, 45 boyhood clubs at this stage. I did look into it. In fact, actually, I'll I'll shout out someone who did do the the reading, DJ Switzer, uh, a writer, wrote a a blog about it, which I was able to prolong today. This is fascinating. And apparently he has has directly said that it was his dream to play for three clubs. And that is Liverpool, Celtic and in the MLS. So if we could, that is Oh, okay. Yeah, that that works. Yeah. He has also, though, heavily suggested it by saying how delighted he was to make a move and... And that it was sort of a dream-like kind of a statement. He's done that on a further two or three occasions. But I mean, what's he supposed to say? I mean, this is absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely, you're absolutely like, right. Well, I don't want to be at West Ham, but you know, here we are, like it or lump it. Um, I mean, he probably doesn't have to. I can see why he would. I think he did support Liverpool as a boy, mm. and he probably had a soft spot for Celtic. That take care, takes care of two of them. And you know, he wanted to go and play in the MLS. Well, he went there and he showed that he did actually care you know mm. like I was saying earlier like a lot of people go there and they either they think it's going to be a cakewalk or they're kind of depressed their career's over and they don't care mm. but whatever it just doesn't work I mean you can count the actual success stories from big sort of players you know on the fingers of one hand and he's you know the thumb the, the, the index finger and everything else you know yeah um so I'm willing to let him off the hook with that and say that it's a slight ebullience that yep. he has yep. and it is probably 
the football cliche of all football cliches to to say on you know it's my dream to play for this my boyhood club yeah but like I let him away with it because I love him he's my boy right, it's good to debunk that particular Robbie Keane myth but finally on this Nick um, if you were signing for your new club what what is the base level of new signing pleased to be here chat like what what's the least you could get away with like you have to show some some enthusiasm so if, if you really did want to be there what what's the least you can get away with surely the starter pack is as soon as I heard about X clubs interest you know etc and so on there's only um, one place I was going to go yeah okay. yeah massive club the fans are, or whenever I've played here the fans are etc and so on but I don't know what the least you could get away with is maybe a kind of well you know I wasn't playing football at, at Y club so you know I'm here good. let's see how it pans out exactly yeah, yeah. Mm. and uh, you know if it's a loan move then you know who knows we could make it permanent in the summer kind of thing mm. Can I add one extra detail to that, which is possibly my favourite thing of all these things, is when you're watching Champions League Weekly and they talk to a new signing. Oh my goodness. And it's got the this it's got the dubbing and it's someone it's like, you know, Fernando Morientes is ended up somewhere and he's like I couldn't believe how much they made me feel at home. When I came in here, it was incredible just to see all of these amazing banners. It's a club with a great history and I can't wait to get started. You know, <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> yeah. sensational. But I just I eat that up so much. I just you know you've got you just hear them speaking incredibly languidly in their own language, and Champions League Weekly Man is is basically slicking back his hair, putting on shades, and like standing on top of a helicopter as he's giving his <laughs> translation of what they're saying. I'm, t- I'm telling you now, from personal experience, do not piss off the makers of Champions League Weekly. They will come for you, I can assure you. Um, just don't do it, so be careful. Um, yeah, okay, so yeah, Robbie Keane, nicely dissected there. I think we've been even-handed, but yeah, I, yeah I'm still stunned that you see him as this happy-go-lucky guy. I just I just don't see it. I see him as this straight-faced, muted celebration merchant. You know, but he's, he's a muted lot of celebration? He no, does a forward roll. No, I know against something. against former clubs. I mean, oh, oh yeah, yeah. He, oh. he loved he loved the very earnest muted celebration. So, but yeah, yeah, he's a he's a you know a Swiss Army knife of, of footballing appeal. So I'm all for it. Tell us about your third love of football, please. Well, this one is a bit broader, but it's the chance for cameramen at football matches to show off their skills, uh, perhaps their frustrated cinematographer skills, most especially during sort of. This sort of matchups in the FA Cup or um, at international tournaments when something weird happens. For me, the absolute knee plus ultra has to be whenever they have minnows and you know in the FA Cup and they zoom in to someone who's watching from a terraced house. You know that's <laughs> or or actually rather they zoom out from a position of like wondering why am I looking at someone doing their ironing? Oh my god! Wow! <laughs> Give that man a BAFTA. It's just. It's it's what I want. I mean, dogs on the pitch, yep. and they're following the dog, and you're like, these guys have got some skills. Like, I was going to say that must be the hardest job of all. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of other ones more recently that were specific. I mean, I think since they've removed, like, if streakers go on now, they just cut the footage, mm. Mm. Um, and they obviously they cut footage for things which are you know quite uh, sort of very grim, you know, like mm. sort of someone seriously injured, which is yep. obviously quite right. But the streakers, it's like, I know you don't want to encourage them, but like, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I mean, who cares? I watch a lot of football. Like, sure, let's, whatever. I mean, it's different if they're going if, on. If and we're not making... allowed to have swearing, we're not allowed to have naked people. That's, I mean, that, that's is that, logical. Is that, so is, I think it's more they just don't want people to get in and, and disrupt the football. Do you think it's about like wobbly bits? 
Yeah, no, I, no. It's clearly about not wanting to encourage this behaviour. But on that on that point, actually, because we know now, Nick, that that pitch invaders and and, and streakers are are a no no when it comes to cameraman territory. But it's that's been tested recently because that guy who cable tied himself to the goalpost at Goodison, it just felt it felt like. Any other circumstances, they would have they would have taken the camera away and said, okay, well, we, an idiot has got onto the pitch. But yeah. it, this felt like one they just couldn't ignore because you didn't know how long it was going to go on for. And obviously, I'm not saying it was funny, but it was a very curious sight, Nick. So the cameraman kind of had to give in. I mean, I, I would counter that by saying it was funny. Um, <laughs> there was a yeah. moment where I was actually quite worried about what was going to happen. What, when they brought the bolt cutters out? Well, <laughs> no, before that, I thought, well, is, how tight is it? I, I was concerned. <laughs> right, okay. Oh, you thought this was a kind of oh right okay. yeah yeah. yeah. Oh. I thought I thought he looked a lot like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, and that <laughs> it kept kind of jumping me out of any other feeling about it. I was like, is that is this that's a long way to go to promote the River Cottage? <laughs> Commission me back, Channel Four, yeah. for God's sake! Give yeah, me a second I'm, series, you shits. I mean, it did give me a sec- can I surprise you? I like junk food. Um, I mean, did you ever see, this is obviously completely beside the point, but did you ever see that episode he did where he was trying to get people to like uh, take a, his healthier version of a pot noodle and he set up some incredibly sad little sort of tasting booths outside like Asda car parks and literally every single person went for the actual pot noodle. <laughs> like even though they must have realised, uh, they must have done it to like 20 people and they still couldn't get enough footage of people who said that his, I don't know, fennel and muslin an elderflower pot noodle was nicer than, you know, the chicken and mushroom <laughs> classic to which we all, of course... Real, uh, real tangent ourselves. we're going down here, Seamus. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. But <laughs> Other little cameraman quirks I enjoy, Seamus. Goals roundups, where it feels like this happens maybe once every six months, where they get directly blamed in the voiceover no matter what the circumstances, for missing a goal. So, well, the cameraman, I'm afraid this one happened a little bit too quickly for our cameraman. So, yeah, I feel like the union must stand up against this and say, can you not, actually? <laughs> yeah, they also do that thing where they will often, the UK or indeed the Irish coverage, will blame the host oh, nations. Yeah. And there's just something slightly <laughs> not nice about it it's it's kind of it kind of gets me um yeah that's that's also another thing blaming it on them it's a, it's, it's a this is a niche uh, journalistic thing but it's the equivalent of um writers who tweet out the pieces they write um, whilst also slagging off the headline that that some kind of sub editor yep. has put on it, just saying the headlines the headlines terrible, but read read the piece. I didn't write the headline. <laughs> Fuck off, mate. You've you know the subs have got you out of more trouble than than uh, they have by with a slightly ropey headline. Not talking about know, anyone in particular. I know exactly there. who you're talking about, and it's absolutely yeah. sensational that he keeps doing it. It really is quite funny. But uh, enough industry chat. My final point on cameramen, Seamus, is that I feel like they're they're the most taken for granted aspect of football coverage. Because we obsess about commentators and pundits and and, and all sorts of ephemeral stuff about football broadcasting. But have we ever considered just how boring and mentally exhausting it must be just to pan left and right for 94 minutes? Yeah, and also, I mean, the, that actual type of live directing is really labour intensive. And as you say really boring and you never notice it. I mean you, we notice it in exactly those handful of times that they get to show a flourish or they make god forbid they make a mistake or you know the slightly pervy moments where they're like showing pretty ladies in the stands at an international wow, tournament yes. which is kind of kind of 
died out a little bit, but it hasn't still fully seen. been phased out, has no, it? No, it's, it's still you're still like okay, right? Mm. We get it, yeah. Mm. Um, or they find you know Tom Brady in the stands, like that's another little moment for them where they're like, oh, we find a celebrity, but like it is incredibly difficult, and the fact that you never notice it is pretty incredible because I think if any of us tried it for any amount of time, I think we'd find it very very difficult to be that consistent there's another thing which i love which is whenever they've realized that there's a big shadow on the pitch and they have to automatically adjust the contrast themselves (laughs) you can see them doing it you know when you can see half the pitch is completely in shade you see them literally manually doing it you're like that is a choice that's someone in a in a in a in a cabin is doing that i got involved i've been involved in some very detailed twitter threads with experts from the industry about how that works Uh, i can't remember any of it but i can assure you it's really really boring This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Meza Harland Dicks with Seamus O'Reilly. It's time to turn our attention to your your hates of football, if we can call them that. Um, tell us about your first one, please. Uh, you absolutely can call them hates in this case. It is basically 98% of footballers' autobiographies. I, I used to do a podcast with my colleague Gavin Cooney, who I'll shout out at this juncture, uh, named The Reducer, and we would listen to you know football songs and we read football books and uh you know movies and whatever and uh nothing was as bad as the footballers autobiographies um well, i've read dozens of them now just either professionally or some of them even i'm ashamed to say just in my own spare time and i always think that they're going to be better than they are i should start at the start by saying there are some good ones i think the consensus view it's not particularly um a brave shout of mine but tony adams addicted is yeah, an incredible work, and I think it was written by with Ian Ridley, and it's it's brilliant. Uh, I actually studied Tony Adams's book in college. It was okay. part of my course, uh, and it was I believe the lecturer was himself an Arsenal fan. At least I got that sense. But it was really really good. Mm. So maybe because that was and I was eighteen nineteen, that gave me a slightly uh, bigger sense that these things could be enjoyable. And then. I just they're just so unbelievably drab mm. um, and also self-justifying so I mean real lowlights I think I've read two of Wayne Rooney's two of Wayne Rooney's three <laughs> autobiographies and they are my god they're chloroform in print they're just <laughs> utterly utterly abusive all right to, to the intellect um, okay but they're not I mean I don't know if you guys have had better experiences maybe you can recommend me ones that are better but good oh, god no it sounds like I'm I'm nowhere near the mileage that you've put in I mean the likes of Tony Adams that had this kind of central thrust that justified the book's existence ten times over that's absolutely fine and then of course like Rooney 
there are players whose whose stature is such that you could not have a book out. But Nick, somewhere in the middle of this, in, in fact, this probably applies to all of football autobiographies. The thing, the problem with them as a read is there's just by definition shitloads of admin involved in being a footballer. You're thinking about leaving or someone's hoping that you leave or or actively forcing you out of a club or selling you reluctantly. Then you leave, then you sign for somebody else, then you settle in there. And that's probably, what, 60% of every book? You know, oh, I thought about it, oh, for God's sake. Uh, and I read, one, I read Andy Gray's autobiography recently and it was just full of that. It was full of admin, full of leaving <laughs> and arriving. And I just think if you take all of that out, you're left with nothing. And particularly if uh, it's uh, the, the, the autobiography of a British player who has moved abroad. Oh, my God. The bragging about, um, you know, how they dealt with the food and the things like that. Actually, I quite like pasta. It's, you know, <laughs> right, someone who you know, went to Italy in the 80s or something like that. So, yeah, that, that, that just uh, adds another layer to it. Yeah, there's uh, one that I read, um, Jermaine Pennant's. Oh uh, yeah. Now this has obviously got quite harrowing subject material, uh, subject matters. Um, he's a guy who's had an awful lot of struggles, t- to put it mildly. And so for that, of course, you do go in with a little bit of sympathy. And also he talks about that stuff quite clearly. But as you say with the Tony Adams stuff, that stuff is all quite quite engaging and quite interesting because you're like, wow, this guy's overcome a lot in his life. Um, you know, he, he grew up in incredibly, incredibly slender means. But Loads of the book is then him talking about his sexual conquests or talking about things that he did. His dog killed his girlfriend's cat, and he it, like literally he said it, he. It tore is this Steve it to, Bruce's novels again? I can't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but there's an amazing line in it. You know, like Stuart Lee has that line about the Da Vinci Code. Is that the famous man looked at the red cup? Anyway, he's got a line in the book, which is, "This Persian cat was very dead," and. <laughs> It just became this mantra I would repeat in my head. I'm like, I'm reading these stories, which are obviously at the start quite harrowing for their own reason, and then quite stultifying and boring and self-justifying about why he didn't make it at a certain level. And, yeah. and then it's these war stories that are incredibly horrible and lurid, interspersed with sentences like, this Persian cat was very dead. It, it kind of, it, it reformatted my brain. I just felt like I had to read either nothing ever again <laughs> or, or something else very quickly or that would be books ruined for me uh, forever. Uh, you, you keep throwing these fascinating outliers at me, but I'm afraid I will have to revert to this approximated middle ground of footballers' autobiographies. We asked our listeners about the mandatory elements of an average footballers' autobiography. First of all, Seamus, Emma Levin says, a whole chapter about how they loved playing football in the park after school. Uh, the the kind, of, kind of innocent grounding of every footballer's career is very much part of... I mean, chronologically, it makes sense, but they, I feel like they need to ram home just how good they were and how much they loved it at an early age. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dennis Wise's autobiography is very good for that. And by good, I mean absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> It's one of the worst things I've ever experienced, um, and it's it's very much that it's it is jumpers for goalposts. He, if I mean, it's a pamphlet, by the way, of, of a book. Um, really, it's you'd, you'd finish it in a wet weekend if if it wasn't so hatefully written. Um, but it's the first the first bit is I love football. I love it so much. It was so great football. I love football, but football was also the big thing. Everyone else was talking about other things, but I was just talking about. It's just this repetition, um, and also kind of again that same story just segues into manic self justification and inane pranks. Um, oh, pranks! Pranks uh, are central to yeah. all of this. Absolutely right. Um, also, Nick, I do feel like a lot of the sentiment in footballers' autobiographies are 
essentially training for when they become co-commentators and the very rigid set of uh, wind-ups they're allowed to have with commentators. Uh, James McCann, for example, says, I feel like every classic football autobiography has to feature them turning up to training in a new car. Extra marks awarded if a teammate uses it in a prank and full partridge points awarded if a local dealership is mentioned. (laughs) But I guess, Nick, this kind of does make sense because cars obviously... uh, I guess are an effective way of charting the player's progress and career trajectory. Yeah, they're, they're, a, they're, they're the sort of immediate status symbol. Once you have, um, you know, you've they'll be make some reference to you know driving a battered old Ford Fiesta when you were first uh, you know first got into the squad or whatever, and then you know they'll maybe graduate to a Peugeot and so on. I don't know enough car brands to really go <laughs> the, uh, to, to chart the progression. And there is always an, a, an, a kind of element of, needless to say, I had the last laugh with, with, with all these things. Yeah, Joey Barton's autobiography is extremely strong on the needless to say, uh, I had the last laugh. I mean, it's, I think the central third of it is pretty much exactly, entirely that, which kind of almost makes it weirdly compelling because you're like, what other incredibly mad and bad thing that we all saw him do in public like on TV, is he going to say was actually was actually really cool? Actually, yeah. two, two things. One is that a lot of these autobiographies are, ru- are slightly ruined for me by being being loosely in the journalism game and knowing who wrote them uh, a lot of the mm. time and knowing the person who wrote them. And the, the thing I liked about Joey Barton's uh, autobiography was he got through it at least two ghostwriters when he was uh, when he was oh, really. And the other, the other thing is that but Jerry, but I don't know whether Jerry Barton would have released his autobiography after Morrissey's autobiography, but that that sound, I haven't read Jerry Barton's, but I have unfortunately read Morrissey's, and that sounds an awful lot like. There's for Morrissey's autobiography. For anyone who hasn't read it, there's about two thirds of it, which is quite quite it's sort of nice, some decent stories about how the Smiths formed, and then genuinely about a hundred pages of him talking about the court case against Johnny Marr in the nineties, <laughs> and it just just bollocks on about this for so long, and that sounds an awful lot like Jerry Barton's and it like Middlesbrough's nineteen ninety seven FA Cup final song. It's just, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Morrissey also in that book says that he was bored of playing you know games and football in school because he was effortlessly good at them. <laughs> and uh, genuinely, you read it, and you're like, oh, there's not even a raised eyebrow. Wow, that is, um, it is unbelievable a piece of work. Also, his novel List of the Lost is the worst book I've ever read. Bar none. Yeah, I would sit, uh, seek out uh, Seamus's article about that, um, about uh, Morrissey's novel as well. Uh, I would really recommend that. This flicks uh, a switch in me as a parent, Seamus, but perhaps, perhaps not in the right way. Gordon Reed says, obligatory references to the player's dad's career as an amateur non-league jobber and the sacrifices he and his mum made <laughs> driving him and his brothers to their respective training five nights a week after a day at work. Every time I hear a story about this, and, 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 it, and it, they're in every book about how, you know, mum or dad drove me three hours to training and then they drove me back and they did this and they went to work and I think to myself I will never do this for my child I mean oh. my, my dad who hates football well doesn't hate football but he has no interest in football drove me to games and he drove me to training he sat there reading the paper and he got back and he said mm, good game I was like yeah, yeah and I just think oh god I'm so grateful for that because I'm definitely not going to do it. No way. <laughs> well, my my dad's the same. My dad has no interest in football. The only sport that he likes, and I use the word advisedly, is Formula One. Well, I follow the the, the, the theory of Sean Luck, the late great Sean Luck, um, about Formula One, which is I get the same amount of enjoyment from putting on two washing machines at the same time and seeing which one <laughs> finished first. Uh, but my dad hated football, had no interest, and thank God he didn't because being pushed into football in a lot of these books, it seems like it wasn't great. 
Um, sometimes, I mean, Joey Barton's case, his dad was like really quite aggressive with them and stuff. And I think in a lot of them, it seems like there wasn't a lot of joy in that relationship sometimes. Nick, Jeff says there's always a chapter about how school wasn't really for them. And that reminded me of when I picked up Teddy Sheringham's autobiography in the train station book swap situation. And this is what he wrote in his autobiography. Football was such a major part of my life that I never had much time for the academic stuff. I was pretty good at maths and English early on, but I think I was considered fairly bright for my age. But as soon as it started getting complicated, you know, Pythagoras and all that stuff, I started to question the necessity for knowing all this. I was going to be a professional footballer, you see, and they didn't need to know Archimedes' principle. That's... It's nicely put, but it just doesn't feel like something Teddy Sheringham would say. No, and this is, again, with the ghostwriter thing, where you think, that's not... He didn't say that. That's that's the result of a rather thin interview session that the ghostwriter has had with the player and has had to kind of pad it out a little bit. He could have at least pluralised his mathematicians. Your Pythagoras's, your Euclid's. Is it Pythagorai? Who knows? Your Archimedes's. The bit where, uh, as you say, inevitably where footballers get to the bit where they say I knew I was going to be a professional footballer and, you know, here I am. I just immediately think of the thousands upon thousands of kids who must have had exactly that thought. Completely jibbed school. Done absolutely no work and got no qualifications whatsoever. And were released by, you know, Watford uh, at 16 and never kicked a ball in any kind of yeah, any kind of standard football, and you just say, "Oh God, this this kind of takes you out of the enjoyment of the whole thing because you just think, Jesus, there must have been so many kids who who had that delusion that they were going to be a professional footballer and it didn't work out for them." Well, I'm not going to shame these people. I did media and film studies at university, so <laughs> I'm in no position to talk. Um, finally, on this one, Seamus uh, Eleven Pod writes in. We've talked so much about these boring, bland, mandatory things that go into autobiographies, but they say, very much enjoyed Maya Yoshida's autobiography. Rather than reading about a player starring for his club, it centres around the struggle for playing time and stresses and strains of curtain buying at Ve 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 Venlo. <laughs> Love to read it. Yeah. I mean, there are other bright spots. I mean, Eamon Dunphy's seminal book, I think. It's only a game, I think it was. Which was, you know, it's it's seminal in the fact that, you know, he clearly was, he was a very good footballer, but he was a very, very gifted writer, at least or communicator in a lot of things. And he was also didn't pull any punches. So there are obviously gems and that almost makes it worse because you think maybe, maybe they've pulled it out. But no, generally they're, they're absolutely abysmal. Good. That's a good way to finally round that one off. Tell us about your second hatred of football, please. Uh, I'm with you all the way on this, although I feel quite bad about it at the same time. Yes, I also feel bad about this. So um, everyone will know exactly what I'm talking about the second that I say this, but I'm talking about poems about football, which are played or recited before coverage of cup or international tournament games, usually by local poets sitting in pubs or striding down cobbled streets. Yes! And I, I, pun- I very nearly punched the air when I saw this. Uh, this was one of the topics. I mean, I just that? like. I mean, of course. Okay, let me set this all out. I love poetry, um, right. and genuinely, unashamedly. So this isn't a, this isn't the thing where I hate poems uh, because they they are good. He said poetically. <laughs> um, it's because I like poetry and I like the you know felicity of language and you know all that stuff that. Just seeing someone like I don't know on Football Focus or you know the start of a of a tournament or something, uh, going like, "This is our game, our daily bread." Come on, son, on me head or whatever you know. Just you can make them up completely off the top of 
your head, really, because they're so unbelievably formulaic. Absolutely. And you can shit like you can you can shoot it in your brain. You can see okay aerial shots at James's Park. Someone walking down the street. Someone handing someone a, a, a I don't know a pasty or something. It's just excruciating. I can't stand it. I'm trying to think about the formula for this sort of thing, Nick. Uh, again, without trying to um, denigrate the uh, the great poets of our time, but they start off very slowly, quite leisurely. They they set the scene. There's a bit of ominous music at the back. You know, it's, it's you know, and then the, the crowd starts getting going, and the, the tempo picks up, and then it just becomes a list of things. So it's like the pies, the programs, the game, the attacks, the the crowd, the halftime break, the queue for the toilets, and then it just, like, really starts to build up. And now I'm thinking about Sean Bean's advert for the Premier League in sort of the mid '90s, which wasn't strictly a poem, but it's about what, you know, my level of poetry appreciation. Yeah, it's that kind of sense of trying to. Uh, you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to convey what it means to, you know, support a football team and be involved in football at all. But it just happens in a in a kind of toe-curlingly cringy way for most mm. of the time. Actually, I had still caught quite a nice moment with one of these things because I, I, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan and uh, I have been uh, obviously kind of raised to despise Derby County. And Derby Ca- <laughs> Forest Derby games are uh, hateful occasions for most of the time. And I go to them every year, and I don't know why because I don't enjoy them. And I, but one of the reasons is that I often I'm often standing there and thinking, why do I hate Derby County? Is it just kind of proximity? Is it to not disappoint my father? What's what's? Why do I despise this football club that aren't really that particularly objectionable? recent financial shenanigans aside and then there was a game a couple of years ago where Derby brought one of these guys out uh, you know the Derby Poet Laureate or whatever the huge shot wow Uh, and they brought him out onto the pitch before a game and I just kind of sat back in my chair and goes okay this is a this is a logical justification for why I can't stand this football club they're the kind of club that will do this and there are lots of embarrassing things about Nottingham Forest but at least we haven't done that I think we're dealing with this really well we're we're not looking you know too much like Philistines I think we are digging to the problem of this in a a football context so Seamus you have this leisurely start you have this this picked up tempo in the middle and then I feel like it's a bit like a a bit like a film trailer in terms of its formula because at the very end there will always be that kind of doom at the end of the day the game <laughs> something something really yeah. really kind of cross-sectional at the end and, and you were doing something really excellent there which is that long sort of Davina McCall style pause <laughs> where I thought you were going to say the game it's on or something <laughs> just like kind of like poetry as some sort of sc- scaffoldry of meaning (laughs) where it's not actually about expression it's about just very clumsily poking at manipulative emotion centers in the brain like like sometimes as you said it's literally just listing you know it's like your mum your dad and everyone we know we're gonna have such fun it's all to play for on the pitch and blah blah blah, 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 blah. <laughs> carry on <laughs> yeah i mean there's only one word i was gonna say um, but you know what i mean it's it's you, it, if you're capable of while you know lampooning it coming up with completely recognisable versions of it, it's a sign that not much thought is going into it. And it's, they're, they're, they're very often complete doggerel. In fact, they're almost always. But sometimes they also have an added air of maudlin sort of self-absorption, which is also, I mean, as Nick was saying about Derby, I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan and there's, I think there are at least three or four particularly prominent Liverpool FC poets uh, who get roped in to do these things. I'm sure they're absolutely wonderful, lovely people and great family members so I'm not going to name any of them or whatever but it's 
it, it hurts my heart to see or hear them because it's, I love poetry and I love football um, but I also like you know ice cream and pizza they, they don't fit together you know no, absolutely fine. Um, I, I, I'm so confident that everyone listening will agree here. I can't, I can't imagine a single word of complaint. Um, and probably not even for this last one as well. Uh, look, been looking forward to talking about this one too. Tell us about your third hatred of football, please. Well, my third hatred of football, and it's a qualified hatred because I kind of love it, but I do hate it. It's the chat box banter you get in illegal streams. Yes. So I've heard I would obviously never use such things. Why do we have to have this this comedy disclaimer? It's fine. What's going to happen to you? Okay, that's fine for you, you know, in your established position at the top of the pod hierarchy. <laughs> but I can already hear those black helicopters being sent by the Champions League weekly people. So I don't want to get I don't want to get the Premier League on my back. Getting interrogated by the Champions League weekly guy must be awful. I mean, there are probably, there's like nine different ways that you can watch football now. And, you know, you have to have all nine of them. So let's just say that, that there's, most people find themselves in the position. And if they have done, that's a big if. I said, OJ Simpson, if I did it, if you will have encouraged this. So on the side of the screen, it's just this, usually if you're lucky, it's tessellating so quickly that you can't even read it because that's a, but sometimes it's not. And it's just, it is, yeah, it's hell is open and the demons are all here and <laughs> it's utter, utterly utterly bereft of of any human light of dignity that space i, but, I hate it but if we try and if we try and place this very specific forum of football discourse in the landscape nick I mean, plenty of people talk about twitter as a cesspit etc but i feel like that still occupies a higher place than some of these because the first rung of the lower depths, I would say, would be the club-specific old-style internet forums. You know, the, the original echo chamber. That is, you know, there will be never an external view will come into that. And there'll be people who have been on there for 20 years, they're characters. So you know that that's the beginning of the depths, I would say. This is interesting because I sort of dipped a toe into these things and would uh, hated it so much that I would have genuinely preferred not to watch the match rather than watch it on these these streams and for for a long time I what part of an old job I had was to moderate a forum so do you know you banned me from that, that forum did I yes <laughs> did I really what did you do I don't want to go into it but it's, it's very important no no, you know no no we've got to get into this now I can't what? remember what it was I um I think I may I may have written something mildly uh, critical about the mother website of oh. the forum right. uh, which which apparently never went down well and you banned me you banned me Wow, this is all, this is this is years of resentments bubbling yeah. up. I, I should, I'm going to release an FA Cup final song about it. Yeah, I should say that this I, I wasn't actually brought on here. We're not recording. This was all an intervention, just so we could <laughs> so we could actually take you on. No hard I'm feelings. Glad, Probably done me yeah. a favour if anything. Probably done me a favour. <laughs> um, so okay, so that that's the first rung of the depths. The second one is YouTube comments, which where people still have a have a you know they're, they're still hiding behind a registered account, and it's still fairly constructive. But at the same time, if you're reading it, why? Why are you reading these comments? So that's kind of the middle rung. And then finally, Seamus, we get to the illegal live stream chat boxes. And it's got to the point now where finding the button to hide the chat has become the very much very much the post ad blocker find the little X dilemma for yeah, 2022. It is. And it's the new attack surface, as they call it, where <laughs> right. you're trying to, you're constantly trying to find it. And 
I, I, you did go into it a little bit in your your episode with uh, Michael Cox, and I was delighted that he didn't go into too much detail because I've more to say about it. But he he said that he would never he never uses them anyway because he's a, he said oh I'm a luddite and I just I you know whatever. I uh, it has actually kind of had the same effect on me where I, it's it really drains not just the chat box but the fact of you know having to x out of things and things coming up and you know my basically my laptop going mad but <laughs> probably the first thing would be those chat boxes because mm. there's sometimes you can't get rid of it who are these people who are uh, they what's well, the motivation i mean i can only presume that they're just people who live in a sort of a void of darkness you know people for whom night brings only despair and they have just this horrible cloying turmoil in their heads that you know they have an audience because you do you, you, you there might be i don't know how many people watch these things could be tens of thousands hundreds of thousands for like a big match if you're the one stream that's working or whatever <laughs> um and like a lot of the people watching them will be in another country and that's why they're doing it so that could be like you know all of barcelona's foreign fans and everything else or liverpool's fans abroad or whatever so that means there could be tens of thousands of people so why not you know find your inner voice unleash your you and say you know repeatedly that you know the moon landings didn't happen or you know I, i've had people you know who are constantly going on about you know that uh i think they say white people don't wash their bottoms you know just repeating it you know and f- right. fixating on a phrase and basically re- just typing it again and again and again and you'd like i don't know if i hope that they're trolling or that if this is actual concern it's such a weird place to vent that opinion. Such a weird place to go. There's so many other places, reachable, feasible, practical places to express whatever these opinions are. But why there? Nick, any theories? Not really, other than, <laughs> you know, why does why does anyone vent feel these kind of strange things on any part of the internet? What might the, this um, particular corner of the internet more palatable? Poetry. Football-related poetry. <laughs> there, you go. Um, there, there is there is some poetry to it. Sometimes, uh, my friend Karen Morris, uh, I'd like to shout out because he did actually did some, I think, quite inventive trolling of pretending to be a millionaire uh, and the chat and trying to teaching people how, like as if it was like the secret millionaire in the chat. Oh, um, if you you can find those on Twitter where he's once or twice said, "Oh yeah, I'll tell you how to become a millionaire," and you have people taking him up on it. And you're like, okay, so no one these people are some people are just there to talk and to chat which you know shouldn't be surprising given that's ostensibly what the thing is for but it's just an endless howling void but it's a very inter- it's a very interesting specific type of, of forum because there's no kind of community building going on this is this is this isn't a long game going on here it's it's almost like in the moment kind of drive by banter slash abuse but there is one moment i think there is one moment of every illegal stream broadcast Seamus, where I, I do think there is a glimmer of innocence, which is just at kickoff. Every single person involved, no matter the, how wacky and how far out their opinions are, they will give you a score prediction. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, ah, oh, bless your heart. You think it's going to be 3-1. You even think someone's going to score first. You think you've worked out who it's going to be. Fair play, because that's the most innocent football chat there could possibly be. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's, that is that is kind of childish. I mean, I think, I suppose, it makes me feel better sometimes for these people to presume that they're quite young. Um, and, you know, for a lot of them as well, they're, you know, angry about other things, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> because they're not trying to ruin my day. They're just upset, generally, which has driven them here. And that's, that's what it is. Um, I think the other thing they always do is they constantly, they'll say things like, what a goal. 
as if they're kind of further ahead in the stream yes. that you are. Dreadful. I mean, I've got to admit, it's quite funny though. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. Good. I mean, because I mean, we none of us should be there after all. Let's face it. So yeah, so yeah. exactly. That's the, the the wages of sin. Yeah, um, I suppose. So I I can't I can't fault it. I mean, that that joke will always earn a beautiful dollar in this town. So I I. I hate it because I always think that I have got just a slow connection. I mean, always. I mean, it's, I've the once or twice I've done this. But yes, so that is my hate, small letters, love relationship with those chat box streams. It's good to end on a on a, a mixed feelings one, let's put it that way. Um, we've, we've settled some scores today. At least two of us have. <laughs> anyway, let's put it that way. Um, Seamus, thanks so much. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you'll, you'll curry a lot of favour with some of those choices. So you're in, you're on safe ground, I think. Thank you so much. And thank you for whittling down the selection. It's, it's as they say, it's a good problem to have. It certainly was. It certainly was. Nick, uh, thanks to you. Oh, it, it, it sounds like we're going to have a long conversation after we've, <laughs> we've uh, stopped recording this. <laughs> Um, that's fine it's fine it, um, it freed up a lot of more of my time to do other more <laughs> constructive things in my life thanks to everyone for listening we'll see you on Tuesday cheerio The Athletic <laughs>